Hello everyone, and welcome to the Dune Podcast. I will now be handing the episode over to Denis Villeneuve, Christopher Nolan, Sam Mendes and James Cameron as they discuss Dune and related subjects. First of all, thank you. You're very generous. I would like to thank you first for coming to see the movie in a theater. That means the world to me. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you, Chris, for being here tonight. That means the world to me, of course. No, thank you for having me. And uh, not just any theater, this DGA theater that's been renovated. It's my first time back in it since it's been renovated. It looks absolutely beautiful. And thank you for giving the speakers a decent workout. That was (laughs) fabulous. (laughs) So my first inkling of anything to do with this project is, is you and I had dinner some years ago with a couple of producers and somebody around the table, it was just back in, it was after arrival and somebody said, oh, Legendary just acquired the rights to, to Dune. And you immediately said, uh, somebody said, well, what's going on with that? And you said, well, nobody's doing anything with that. And two things were immediately apparent to me. One is you should never be a professional poker player. <laughs> And the other is, soon enough, I'm going to be sitting there watching your version of this incredible book. And now that I have, a couple of times now, uh, I want to know how long was this long-held dream? When did it start? Um, you mean, I apologize, Chris. You said, how long? The, 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 just the, the, the when, did, when did you first want to do oh, this book? How oh, long has this been in your head? Oh, oh okay. Um <clears throat> I read it when I was 13 years old, so it's like, uh, and of course, when I, I when I read the book, I uh, it was at the precise moments where I was trying to get interested of what's what was happening behind the camera, and uh, discovering the job of a director. And I remember the, at the time, uh, my best friend and I were writing screenplays, doing storyboards, and we were dreaming at the time. Of course, it was fantasy, but we, we, we were storyboarding Dune. I mean, we were d- trying to, with dreaming at the time, but it was just like f- f- out of reach, of course. Then when uh, I uh, came here working in LA, uh, when people were asking me, what would be your ultimate project? And I w- uh, it, the book always came back in my mind. It's a book that stayed with me for 40 years and I kept getting back to it. There's, it still brings a deep joy and a deep inspiration to me. So it's like it's a. Uh, but I would say I considered uh, working on on uh, on the book since maybe seven or eight years that I started to say, okay, where are the rights? How come after the Lynch movie, which with all respect to the master, I loved some aspect of it, but there's a, when he deviated from the book. Uh, so I, I kept for years wondering who will do another adaptation. I was waiting for an adaptation. I was waiting, waiting, and then I get tired. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, with respect to the Lynch adaptation, what, what I feel when I see the film is this is a very, very different film. Uh, and it does seem closer to the book. Uh, not that I'm an expert on the book. I read it when I was about, about the same age as, as you did. Um, and yet there's some kind of lingering respect for some of the Lynch film, I think, in there, even as it's a completely new version of it. And, and I think in some ways what they share is, is a complete commitment to realizing an absolutely detailed world. 
And how did you start to plan the level of detail that, that's in this film? That's the, the thing is that I said to the crew, uh, to all crew, that it, we were not there to express ourselves, but to try to bring Herbert, the words of Herbert to the screen. I really, we, the book was the Bible. We, we went back to the, the, uh, the book all the time. At the beginning, at the very beginning of the process, I uh, sat alone with my storyboard artist and I spent weeks drawing alone with him. A bit like I did when I was 13 years old with my friend. It was exactly the same. So trying to, like an archaeologist, trying to go back to the the old images that I had when I I was really trying to go back to the images I had when I read the book at fr the first time when the, the those uncorrupt image, you know, the image and the emotions that I had when I read the book and and uh, focusing on nature and uh, and uh, the place of the human of humans in the ecosystems and so um it and i said to the crew that, um, that I, I, I did that work with my storyboard artist and then i brought one designer and uh, it was forbidden to talk about to take any reference reference from the internet i, I wanted it to come from dreams or trying to meditate and trying to find images to, i just you know there's an elephant in the room and it's Star Wars. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's to design a movie like that, or, uh, that uh, Star Wars as being inspired deeply by, by Dune, they are trying to, just try to bring something fresh or, that. so the idea was to focus on dreams and book, the book, the book, the book. I did that, that work uh, happen in parallel with the screenwriting process. What was the, how did the script because obviously adapting such a complicated book, such a long book, talk us through a little bit of how that process interacted with, with the design ideas and the visualizations. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was a parallel process because at the beginning uh, uh, I asked Eric Roth to, uh, to put his hands on the keyboard at the beginning and, and, as, and as he was doing so, I was uh, uh, starting to, to, to draw with uh, my friends, trying to bring images to... Uh, so it was like a parallel work. So the so thing is that I had a lot of time. I have say, like a year of design and design and design uh, in a very intimate way. But it was that uh, just to find the main alphabet, the, the language, the visual language of the movie. Once I found that, I brought my project designer on board. And then he explored, he explored that world and they, they find all the cultures. And, uh, and at what point was your decision to do just the first half of the book. I mean, it's almost exactly the first half of the book. I think it's slightly into book two. Uh, it's uh, right at the beginning. It's, it's something that I, I uh, proposed uh, to the studio right away because I, I was feeling that the, to try to uh, put that story into uh, one movie will it, it will be damageable. Uh, it will be a mistake. Uh, mm -hmm. And they, they didn't, it was not a discussion. They agreed spontaneously. They said uh, the, the only thing where we started to talk was that I wanted to make both movies in the same time. Mm. And that felt too expensive. <laughs> and uh, and uh, um, I should say that, you know, you're always as good as your last movie and you, you bring the repeated what. And, and I think that Blade Runner wasn't a major box office success. So I would, they, I, <laughs> I think that they were a bit, um, cold at the idea of, um, investing 
or two movies right away. I think that's the, the truth. That's what I, I understood. I, I think that was <laughs> I think that was negotiating tactics on the studio's part because I think Blade Runner was a very successful film and an incredible piece of work. So I think they were pulling your leg a little with that. But I have to say, having visited the set of, of a couple of filmmakers who shall remain nameless who were doing two films back to back, I've never seen people so exhausted. It's such difficulty. I, I imagine myself I would never do two films back to back. But I, I will have cried. I'm so happy we didn't. Because yeah. I, will, uh, sorry, I will not add uh, the stamina to do that. Frankly, the truth, uh, yeah. uh, I'm grateful that it happened this way because uh, it will have, uh, shooting in the desert and the elements, it was like, it was uh, very inspiring, inspiring and exhilarating, but I will have, uh, it, uh, I will were exhausted at the end of this shoot. Yeah, exhausted. How many days did you shoot? Um, it's a tricky question because I'm not sure about the answer. I think that I woke up uh, 120 times <laughs> to, to take a camera in my hands, but the actual real number for the main crew is 105 or something like that. Uh, but I had, for the first time of my life, uh, I had uh, decided to work with uh, more than one unit hmm. because otherwise I will not be here tonight. It was, it was like too much work to do and too much little time. So uh, I had to, for the first time, learn how to direct multiple units. And that was like, uh, I, it's, it's not the best way to work. I, I, I'm, I love to work with one camera, one tripod, that's it. But, but not, I, had, I didn't have the choice I had to do it this way. And where did you shoot? What were your, what were your choices in terms of where you would build, where you would find locations? How did you go about that that process? Man, we choose the best for because they had the necessary stage, the the, the stage space that we had what needed. I had shot Blade Runner there. They had they are fantastic uh, stages, big enough for the set that we were designing. And then uh, we shot in Jordan and in Abu Dhabi because in Jordan you have like uh, all the rocky, rocky formation that I was looking for, but not the sea of sand. And that's the thing that I said to the studio that I was, I, it was not a negotiation. I I didn't want to to to, to shoot the the desert on a back lot, or, or say, mm. I I didn't want to use green screens. I wanted to go in the real environment to be as close as possible to nature, as Frank Herbert did when he wrote the book. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the the most spectacular locations that, that you've used in the film. Uh, is Wadi Rum in, in Jordan, which um, some of you may know from Lawrence of Arabia. And a lot of films have shot uh, in Wadi Rum since Lawrence. Um, but I, for my money, this is, this is the first time I've seen it used in as expressive a way. Uh, the sense of place, I think, is extraordinary. And how was it shooting in Wadi Rum? Because the thing about Wadi Rum is it's this vast valley. I mean, just on a, on a scale... I just can't think of anything else in the in the world on on that scale. So, how were you getting to where you were shooting? Were you camping out there? Were you staying in a nearby town? There's a town called uh, Aqaba that uh, mm. that is part of the Lawrence of Arabia story. Aqaba uh, by land. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Frank Herbert, when he wrote Dune, was in, inspired by T. Lawrence's uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Mm. See, and and then. Uh, uh, should, I mean, it was like a natural, it was something natural to go back because there's so many links between the uh, Lawrence of Arabia and, and uh, Dune. They decided to have a, a man that decided to 
because he falls in, in love with a new culture and one he feels home with this new in this new culture and wants to help the culture and goes to war with the culture and then realize that he himself is an instrument of colonialism so it's very close to uh, and uh, so it was like it made sense to go to uh, to Wadiram now I, I uh, it's it was my third time that I was shooting in Jordan I had been there first alone with a video camera making a documentary about uh, Petra when I was a, a film student I came back uh, uh, 10 years later with a small film crew to shoot a feature film there and I remember scouting all around Jordan saying to myself if ever I, I do a movie like Dune that's where I come back because the rock formation there are so poetic so powerful so unique then it became as you rightly said uh, more exploited in in, uh, in movies but uh, it just feels so close to the the description of the book mm-hmm. there's a place that the final scene where uh, Paul and Jessica meets finally the Fremen it's exactly the description it's like that kind of horseshoe uh, uh, dead end in the rocks with it, it was like uh, very mesmerizing for me to to find those uh, those locations that fit felt so so close to the spirit of the book yeah that's fabulous um what were your choices in terms of what to build because obviously there's a huge visual effects component um there's all kinds of enhancements to the environment i think beautifully beautifully blended um what's your process of of deciding what to build uh and what were the biggest sets that you built the the biggest one was probably um there's two there's like the palace the the residency The, we built like a massive corridor so that maybe 30 feet high and it's, it was like uh, we took the old stage uh, that uh, I remember the seeing the mouth of the producer when he saw the, <laughs> the size of the sets but we did also the, the thing is that I did one compromise because uh, of a budget I, uh, I wanted to shoot the landing on the Atreides are landing <clears throat> I wanted to shoot that in the desert in Jordan but it was too uh, too com- too expensive mm. so we built a tarmac in in Hungary like the size of two football field and uh, surrounded by uh, uh, sand screens around and uh, that was probably the biggest it sounds, it sounds silly to say but that tarmac was huge i mean that yeah. was like that uh, to, to create a scale to have the distance with the the extra to uh, to have the proper scope um, how did you get the light the sense of heat and, and sun there is amazing in that scene that's the thing we were very lucky with climate in Jordan we had those beautiful white skies blow up skies with a lot of wind and strong winds and and uh, little sandstorm we were I was like the gods of cinema were with us <laughs> and I was so happy and we, w- we were able to shoot, come back on schedule. We were heroes. Then we got punished because we landed in, Jar- in, in Hungary and then the, the, it started to rain nonstop. So it was like uh, something you cannot have on Iraq. So yes, that was like uh, the plan didn't work that well, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but... but um, The good thing is that uh, we shot uh, uh, some interiors in, in Budapest. We went to Jordan for for uh, several weeks. When we came back, the crew knew exactly the amount of sand required <laughs> on costume and on the, the dust. And so everybody came back with that that experience of the desert. So it uh, allowed us to recreate with a, uh, special effects the the dust and uh, and 
waiting for the right skies. Mm. So even the, the light, you know, as the doors open and that, that bright light, is that just overexposing the... Yes, 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 yes. yes, 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 yes. It's phenomenal. And it looks a lot of dust. I mean, yeah. a lot of dust and a lot of uh, propellers. Yeah. A lot of, there's a lot of actors that they didn't like this. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. Well, talk to us about the actors. Talk to us about casting. Um, I have a, a quick question about it because it's an extraordinary cast uh, with so many uh, familiar faces doing something new and, and, and different. Uh, did that create scheduling problems with the, the actors there the whole time? I mean, obviously, Timothy Chalamet, who's phenomenal in the movie. I mean, he would have had to be there the whole time. But was it, was it the usual sort of scheduling puzzle that had to be put together? Uh, I think that as memory is good, it was it, as usual, but it was not uh, nothing special there. I would say um, they, because there was like blocks, you know, you had the, the German blocks where you had uh, Zendaya and, and uh, Javi Bardem, and uh, but uh, I think the main problem was Oscar Isaac that did, was not able to come to uh, Jordan with us, so I had to sh- find st- the usual strategies to f- shoot him. Mm. In, in yeah, I think that the only problem we had with the Oscar schedule, but uh, for the rest of the people, I think it, it it went quite well. It was a long shoot, so it allowed to, yeah. And how did you uh, choose your cast? How did you go about taking what had been in your head for so long, you know, Frank Herbert's words on the page? You must have had very fixed ideas about those characters. I mean, even more than we usually have from screenplay. You must have had... Really yeah, specific things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the, the biggest challenge for me in this movie was to try to be able to please the teenager I was. <laughs> because I was totalitarian. I was an animal. I was really uh, 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 pretentious, ambitious. Uh, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I, wa- I was dreaming big. And uh, to try to... Um, you understand what I mean? To to it's such an old dream. I remember talking with Hans uh, Zimmer when, uh, talking about, uh, at the beginning, and he said, "Is it dangerous that we try to bring to life a, such an old dream? Are we face uh, will we face necessary disappointment? I'm it's like disappoint ourselves, or that that was a big challenge is to try to not disappoint ourselves. Yeah, I'm a bit so." About casting, it's uh, uh, the same. I mean, Timothy and Paul's himself. Uh, you work with Timothy. You, you, you. I did when yes. he was a wee lad. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, I think, it, yeah, Interstellar was the first film where he got to go on his own without his parents and, and be, you know, a young man. And uh, he was just, just absolutely lovely. And I assume he still is. But uh, yes, he he's is. extraordinary he, in the film. He was my only choice, honestly. If he, for, for, uh, I think he has. Uh, a level of maturity, and uh, again, he looked very young on camera, mm. and that contrast uh, was perfect for Paul Atreides. Also, his features are very aristocratic, and he has, uh, as you know, the charisma of a rock star. I mean, Timothy is incredible. The camera loves him so much, uh, because I needed that the, the audience, the audience, to believe that if ever, and I'm praying again, the gods. If ever we do part two, we will. Know, we need to believe that this guy will uh, fool a whole planet and make them believe it's a messianic figure and uh, and bring them them into a war. So he, he needs uh, that charisma. Well, uh, he's only fifteen in the book. I I seem to remember. Yeah, uh, and he bridges that that 
that age very very nicely. It's kind of unthinkable without without Tim, I think. Um, and the rest of the cast, as it fleshes out, it's one of these movies where the scale of the film is greatly enhanced by the scale of the cast, by these new faces coming in, and uh, you know whether it's Jason Momoa or uh, Josh Brolin or whatever. And uh, it's a great ensemble. But the thing, I thank you. The thing is, um, there's like I had a list. And that list is pretty close to, to what you have on screen right now. They, there was some, of course, people on that uh, problem with the uh, schedule. So ads, there's are, there are some surprises for me, some people that came on, on board that uh, uh, I was not thinking of. But frankly, no matter what people think about the film, I think that the description, when you read the book and you read the description of the character, we are pretty close to, to Frank Herbert's spirit. I think that I'm, uh, it's a thing that I'm proud of is the casting of this movie. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us about, uh, Baron Harkonnen, tell us about Stellan Skarsgård. I mean, it's an extraordinary look. I mean, what did that involve technically? I mean, we see. Yeah. The, the, um, I, I wanted to, to do as much as possible, uh, on camera and, uh, And when I, I asked uh, Stellant, uh, who was my first choice, I asked, uh, I would love you to, to play the Baron. And he said, how, how do you want to do it? And I said, practically, I want to, to create a prosthetic suit. And he said, okay, I'm in. Because he would have refused if I had done it virtually. He wanted to, he loved the idea. He loved the idea to be able to portray himself, to be, uh, he didn't want to do something miniature. So we agree on that. Then that's why, Every morning, the eight hours of makeup, he never complained. <laughs> oh my God. No, no, eight it was, hours. Yeah, it was eight hours to get in that suit. And, uh, and, uh, and the, the challenge was the, the shape. I, uh, I didn't want the, the Baron to look uh, like a fat baby or, or uh, something uh, or uh, some, uh, a grotesque character. I wanted him to be frightening, to be muscular. To, so with my storyboard artist, we drew a draw hundreds of shapes to, to come with that shape that will, uh, uh, and when it, it came for a costume, my favorite costume of the Baron, it was when he was naked. I, I thought it was so powerful. The, so that's why the first scene I, I rewrote the first scene. So we to start with that steam bat because I wanted to see him at, le, at, at, la, at least one time naked. I thought it was so beautiful. <laughs> And was there a conversation about Apocalypse Now at all? I mean, there's such a wonderful movement of the hand. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, Marlon Brando was definitely an inspiration for the Byron to do, and, and, uh, yep. I, uh, when, when, when we, we, um, Greg Fraser and I were brainstorming about the film, we were so, it was like for us, like a kind of love letter to the big screen experience, the theatrical experience. It was, the book was calling for that, the, the landscape. And that it's a story of a boy that will slowly remove the burden of all the, his heritage and find comfort and, and make peace with a part of his identity as much, as much uh, as he's going deeper and deeper into a landscape, a bit like a, in some ways and the character in apocalypse now there was something like uh, this idea of getting inside the landscape and it, it becomes a more and more an introspective introspective journey mm. there's i don't do that usually but there's a lot of, uh, of homage little 
wings to move movie I deeply love and, and our filmmaker I admire. So mm. there's tons of references. It was just an act of pleasure, I would say. <laughs> well, I, geography is enormously important to the, to the film. Where did you shoot the Caladan scenes? In in Norway, uh, mm. yeah, in the, in the, on the west coast of Norway, where we found those cliffs that uh, felt again like the description of the book some uh, there's some cliffs that were shot in the the big ones that are we see when paul walks and the spaceships are rising from the waters in norway the cemetery scene was shot in uh, in uh, budapest on cliffs mm. and then we added uh, the ocean in the background mm. um, again oscar is isaac yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> well it's worth it so. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's fantastic where you create the, the different worlds and allow us to to really really get lost in it. Uh, obviously, a huge component of that is visual effects, um, but I think it's one of the most seamless marriages of, of live action photography and computer generated visual effects that, that I've seen. I think it's it's very very um, compelling at, at every turn. How did you approach visual effects for the film? Yeah, the thing is, uh, um, as uh, um, you do yourself, I think you shoot as much as possible on relocation and you embrace, you try to bring as, there's, I tried to avoid, there are some shots in the truth that are pure CGI, but um, I tried to avoid those uh, uh, as much as possible, the, the old movies. I mean, to shoot with, with real environments, with real plates as much as possible, using helicopters as proxies, mm -hmm. uh, to, the tricks that, uh, and it's all about light at the end of the day and, and add a master class into uh, how to lit a shot with uh, doing Blade Runner with uh, Roger Deakins because Roger supervised with me all the VFX. So I spent a year listening to him on every shot. I mean, for me, I learned so much how to work on, on VFX with Roger. It is, uh, so that helped me tremendously to direct the team here. Mm. And uh, working with my old friend Hans Zimmer on the music, uh, the music is incredible in the film. The range of sounds, and, and when you see the film for a second or a third time, the structure of how those sounds are used and how the different themes are assigned in such a complicated piece of work, uh, it's very, very impressive. The, the freshness of the sounds are great. How did, I mean, Hans came on board very early, I, I understand. And um, describe a little of that chaos. <laughs> <laughs> chaos. You know what you're talking about. No, but, uh, I know uh, wherever I speak. <laughs> <laughs> no, Hans, Hans, I think scoring that Hans had never, if I may, it's a story he tells a lot in public right now that he, he had never even seen the previous incarnation of, of, of the, 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 because he wanted to stay a virgin. He, he wanted to, he said one day, maybe I will have the chance to score uh, an adaptation and he wanted to, so he never heard anything uh, that has been done before for other versions. And he became obsessed with the idea to create sounds that will come from uh, another world. He created instruments, spent months, if not uh, a year, creating sounds and, and r r really uh, uh, creating instruments that will uh, use wind. 
and uh, he was obsessed with the idea of uh, uh, we both agreed that a score should and enhance the idea of the feminine the feminine power of the book the the the, the female qualities of the book it's also it, he brought this idea of uh, the female voice and try to get out of this comfort zone he was obsessed to trying to find new ways of using rhythms and and using new instruments and uh it became and voices like, as well a lot of voices yeah yeah, cool. yeah and he became he was really like a mad scientist i mean he were he and i was waiting and i was waiting and i said he said it it sounds fantastic yeah <laughs> but but he came and but when well, suddenly he wrote that beautiful suite for uh, paul and uh, that was so moving and um then it, it it was an explosion of music that and i think i think he's still scarring the movie right now <laughs> I'm, not, i'm not joking <laughs> i i still receive music from time to time because he wants to inspire me for the second one but but uh, and um the the main thing with the, the music is was the spirituality the sacred quality of the music that it felt like um music to enhance the spirituality the relationship with nature uh, that felt spiritual that's that uh, uh so he worked uh, it was a very unique experience uh, working with Hans, honestly uh, yeah it's uh, for me i mean it was a, mm. yeah well and the the attention that, that he always gives to the design the sound design of the music and how that's going to interact with with the sound effects i think the mix is really extraordinary um it was Doug Hempel and in the run Bartlett yes yeah. uh, they um I had done Blade Runner with them and I had the best experience and um Hans wanted to flirt because of that idea of using new sound he was flirting he came very close to the border of sound design he asked mm-hmm. the permission to the boys uh, uh, to Theo Green and Mark Mangini said guys I'm going to get very close. <laughs> and and but they worked together. I mean it was really teamwork. They, there was no because we didn't want to uh, have a car crash into the mix room, the dub room, you know. So it, it, we, it it's not something that was improvised. Uh, it, there was like a lot of back and forth between both teams. Yeah. And to make sure that uh, to create that and uh, it's a, I love when you have that kind of feeling where you don't know if it's score or design that it yeah. becomes that the line becomes blurred becomes just like a become very immersive and atmospheric I deeply love that it's by far my most musical movie huh? I don't use a lot of music in my uh, I, the, this one is like I think the, it's like a never ending score I mean it's a, it's a, but uh, my because I was feeling that it needed that kind of operatic feeling to to bring the and the music um the music was also used as a uh, counterpoints to sometimes give hints on the um, inner strategies of the character out their thought process a bit like a, because in the book you have access to the thoughts of the characters but here we were trying with music to get a bit closer to the spirit of the book i was and uh, just talk a little bit about editing were you editing with the music or were you uh using temp score what was your editing process uh, uh, i hate to use temp score mm-hmm. i mean frankly uh, first i try to cut the movie without any music mm-hmm. the truth is that to make a screening at one point for the studio I had to use temp score because Hans was like still in his uh, lab but uh it was like temporary i deeply hate temp scores yeah and was it a difficult film to edit I mean in terms of getting all of this complexity it feels like there must have been significant challenges in terms of clarity particularly yeah 
The thing is that uh, part, the, I will say that the most challenging thing was the opening of the film, how to introduce this world to an, uh, to an audience that maybe to people that didn't read read the book yet. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. My English is going the, the, the trap right now. I think I'm, I'm a bit jet lag and I apologize for this. The, 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 the idea was to please the hardcore fans as I, I am and uh, as me and to make sure that people who never read the book will, will feel welcome. And that was the big challenge. And, and that uh, was a challenge in the screenwriting and in the, the challenge in the editing room as well. And uh, things that uh, uh, we spent a lot of time to edit were the dream sequence mm. to give enough, not enough to just to make sure that it was, how can I say it? I, I wanted the, the, the vision to be like confusing, like dreams, mm. but still clear enough to give hints to the audience. So it's not frustrating to, it's a, that to find that balance was not easy. Well, I think uh, you and, and your entire team did an absolutely uh, incredible job of that. I think this film is going to introduce a whole new generation of, of fans to to Dune who haven't even read it and perhaps will go and read the book now. Uh, I think it's an extraordinary piece of work and I've had the luxury of seeing it a couple of times now and each time I watch it, I discover new things, new details uh, to the world uh, and I think the way in which it's made is absolutely for the big screen. It's a real pleasure. It's a real gift to uh, film fans everywhere. Uh, so thank you very much for that, Denis, and thank you everyone for coming. You're very generous. Thank you, my friend. I think this idea of the movie as an island has gone away and people want in characters that they can invest in over time. I was just going to say that maybe looking at the future, because we're both involved in these big cinematic types of experiences that need to be seen in a, in a movie theater. Do you think the idea of what a movie is is getting redefined, kind of like the ground shifting under our feet right now? Let me kick off by just saying what a pleasure it is to, to meet you and get to congratulate you on your, your triumphant film, Dune. The fear is gone. Only I will remain. Just to say up front how much I love the film and truly appreciated it in the cinema with that sort of almost full body resonance that you get in the cinema to the score, to the image. And at the end of two and a half hours, I didn't want it to end. I wanted more. And so fortunately, I think you're doing more, right? You've been greenlit. Yes, 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 yes. I'm a bit responsible for the idea that uh, I decided to split the first book in two parts because I was feeling that from the start that it was too dense. And uh, it's a book that takes its power into details, you know, the way Frank Herbert approached it ecology, biology, all the different tribes, all the different uh, cultures. And I wanted to try to keep as much of the essence of it. And it felt too uh, dense for one movie. So I proposed to the studio the obvious. I said, let's shoot both parts. And then I will edit the first one, finish the first one, we released, and then I worked on the second one. And the studio agreed spontaneously to do the movie in two parts, but they gave me the only money to shoot the first part. They said, let's shoot first. The first part, see how it goes. And today I'm grateful that it happened this way because frankly, I don't know I, I would add, add the necessary stamina to be able to sustain a double shoot. You know, it's like after the shooting uh, part one, I was like exhausted. You are 
planning four movies in the same time. It was a challenging decision because I either wanted to do it, do it right, or just not even do it. I just made this strange, I guess strange decision that everything I needed to say artistically about the things that were important to me, I could say within the framework of the universe that I knew it could be. So just like Dune takes place across worlds, you know, the, the, the later avatars take place across, uh, certainly across two worlds, because some of it takes place on Earth as the story evolves, and different biomes within, because Arrakis is the desert planet. Earth is not one ecosystem. It has desert, it has rainforest, it has ocean, polar, boreal, forest, and so on. So I said, well, I'm inspired by Earth. I'm going to do a planet that's so rich and so complex that has so many different ecosystems. I can just spend as much time here as I need to. And so, you know, I created enough backstory, enough richness of culture and different levels of technology and so on to keep to keep it going. But then you, I think what you're talking about is the, is the execution. Like yes. actually getting out and doing it. And I might have Getting out of it alive. <laughs> you know, I haven't gotten out of it alive yet. <laughs> We're pretty much, two is kind of, you know, it's fully in the can and, and we, you know, we have a working cut that we're, we're filling in the visual, visual effects within. I feel pretty confident with that film. Uh, three is still a bit shadowy. It's, it's way too long and I haven't really turned my energy into a disciplined cutting process on that yet so but I know I've got it I know I've got the performances and that's the important thing wow. I've done all the capture and I've done all most of the live action shooting I still owe a little bit on some of the adult characters because we were more concerned with the kids aging out you got to get busy before Timothy uh, got the beard know, starts, yeah. to, <laughs> starts to grow a beard right you've worn a still suit before no this is my first time your desert boots are fitted slip fashion at the ankles. Who taught you to do that? Seemed the right way. If I may, did you shoot everything at the same time or you, you, you are pacing yourself through the years? We mixed the schedules for two and three together based on the, the types of scenes and the environments. I said, let's just treat it like it's a six hour miniseries and we're only going to go to Frankfurt once and we're going to shoot all the scenes from two and three at the same time. That was more or less the motif. And actor availability was kind of an issue as well. So anything that had to be done with a specific actor, we did all the scenes for two and three together and a little bit of four. Because once again, I had to shoot the kids out before yeah, yeah, yeah. The, they're allowed to age six years in the middle of the story on page 25 of, of movie four. <laughs> so I needed everything before then, and then everything after we'll do, we'll do later. I must say, uh, uh, you, you don't make things easy on yourself. <laughs> no, no. I think it's changing. I think this idea of a movie as an island has gone away, and people want in characters that they can invest in over time. I was just going to say that maybe looking at the future, because we're both involved in these big cinematic types of experiences that need to be seen in a movie theater. Do you think the idea of what a movie is is getting redefined, kind of like the ground shifting under our feet right now? The, what is cinema? For me, it's like trying to create poetry with images and create a story through, through that poetry. It's like it's something that can be done in different size of screen. The danger of making 
movies that are built like a, a, a franchise brings the language of cinema toward television sometimes, like uh, something yeah. that the yeah. structure of a of a television. And uh, I see that with some franchise right now where it's like it looks closer to sometimes a, a TV. The narrative language. Me, I'm very optimistic. I think that the theatrical experience will prevail. I think that we yeah. need this kind of massive, immersive, Uh, physical, as you rightly said, because the sound is uh, uh, with Atmos system or IMAX is so, it becomes physical almost. It's like it's something that it cannot be reproduced at home. And there's nothing more powerful than to share an emotion together in a theater. I think that as humans, we need that kind of connection. I think we are not meant to be isolated. You know, it's like a, like TV, I would say. Uh, If you know your character is always going to survive so that they can make another movie, then there's no real jeopardy. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's true, it's true. It's there's true, no true. anxiety on the part of the audience that someone that they've fallen in love with is going is, is gonna to die. This will be a great honor for you to die holding it. Where's the outworlder? What is your take on the theater experience and streaming? Are you afraid of, uh, of the evolution of things right now? I'm not afraid. I like, I like change. I'm a child of the 60s. I like it when things are chaotic. But uh, what we can see is an expanded form of cinema. I want to do a movie that's six hours long and two and a half hours long at the same time. Same movie. And you can stream it for six hours, or you can go and have a more condensed, immersive version of that experience in a movie theater. Same movie. Just yeah, that's one's, the, that's one's the novel and one's the, the movie. You know, why not? I think let's just use these platforms in, in ways that haven't been done before. It's always uh, fascinating to hear you uh, thinking about uh, the future of things, sir. <laughs> I love you. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're both exploring that future. Up ahead was Pandora. You grew up hearing about it, but I never figured I'd be going there. So you've been greenlit, so you're going to do part part two. And just, you know, thankfully the audience embraced that in the way that they, I guess, embraced maybe the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They just went with it. They said, yeah, give me more. As you were trying to crack the code of the book and adapting it to, to a script and ultimately to a film, how did that influence individual decision? I said to my crew, that's the Bible. I remember watching Peter Jackson, The Lord of the Ring. I was feeling that he had tried at his best to stay close to the description of Tolkien at the time, that he, mm. did, he didn't yeah. went away. It was, and I, I wanted to have the people who had read the book to feel that all the love and the respect and the reverence I had for Frank Herbert. And so I said, we will not express ourselves. We will try to bring Herbert to the screen as much as possible. That's the thing that I was thinking, um, because there are similarities between Dune and Avatar. But me, I had the, that Bible. You went from uh, a scratch, you created that world. But I had the grand provocation of a book like Dune and the detail that Herbert went to in creating an ecology and a culture and sort of a business and an economy, you know, an interstellar economy and how it worked. And so with that lesson and that and that challenge, you know what you have to do to compete with a, a world-class vision like that. You have to do all those things all those things. It was certainly a good challenge to, to, to rise up to. The thing that strikes me about Dune 
is that it's truly epic. And when I use the word epic, I'm using it in a very specific way, meaning like a David Lean film or to a very large extent like the Lord of the Rings films. But when I think of films that have epic events in them, like let's say um, a Marvel Universe film where whole cities get destroyed and so on, they don't feel epic to me. But you seem to have the, the discipline, the vocabulary of actual epic filmmaking, that kind of grand proscenium frame that's just presented and takes its time with the music and so on to linger and the little tiny figures. Is that just innate with you or were you, or were you trying a style on this, on this film that you hadn't done? The idea behind was to try to bring back humanity to its right position in the ecosystem. A bit like in the book, we are in a world where people are not able to, to control the uh, Arrakis. The Arkanand on their planet were destroyed all nature. It's a culture that managed to destroy, destroy everything. But on Arrakis, the ecosystem are stronger than human. There's that, that feeling of humility that I was trying right. to bring right. yeah. the, the human figure at that is right position in the ecosystem. And it's like, so the movie was basically designed with that scope, as you said, and, and then uh, high intimacy. There's not a lot of middle ground shots yet. It's really a landscape That's, of faces. Yeah, exactly. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. The emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I learned about the, the power of landscape working on documentaries at National Film Board of Canada when I was like a, yeah. an assistant back then to Pierre Perrault, a documentary filmmaker. And we went in nearby the North Pole on Ellesmere Island. We spent uh, several weeks there. I haven't been there, but I know a bit about it because they've done some Mars simulation uh, projects up there on Ellesmere. What amazed me is uh, all the emotion that were coming every morning when you were waking up and the, all the light impact the landscape and what you were receiving as an emotion. And it's like, it felt like so cinematic at the time. And it was a very important um, lesson for me how to listen to nature and the power of nature and, and in order to create cinema. So it's like, uh, that's part of my, uh, let's say, film school. I think if you open your mind in a situation like you're talking about, something that people rarely see and that doesn't require our presence, in fact, we, we almost mar the landscape in a way, you feel that sense of humility, but you also feel a sense of participation in something so much bigger than our day-to-day -day lives. I call it bearing witness. You know, when I went to the bottom of the Challenger Deep, I knew I was seeing something, a lunar landscape that no one had ever seen before. And I felt privileged just to bear witness. And I felt very small against the scale of, of deep time. But you've managed to bring that feeling back and put it into a feature film. She's always going on about the flow of energy, the spirits of animals. Really hope this tree hugger crap isn't on the final. You have all my admiration because you are, I think, working in mostly in virtual environment, and I have no idea how you can survive, how you can do that, keep your creativity alive in that those kinds of, of environment. It's amazed me the way you work. I've been in the filmmaking game for about 40 years, and I started off with, uh, you know, with film and with, with all real sets and real tricks and all in camera and all that sort of thing, and, and made an, an aesthetic and a discipline out of that. So if I hadn't done that, I don't think I could do all the virtual stuff now. You're clearly working also with visual effects and blending the two quite seamlessly. I mean, the last time I checked, there were no 400-meter-long sandworms <laughs> around. It's a very long casting process, I must say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, but it, it, it did strike me that you built as much as you could. 
you could feel that. And I, and I thought that the transition to that, which was CG, was happening a little bit farther away from camera than it is on an Avatar film. You tried very hard to, to put cinematic aesthetics into your CG shots. There's a lot of lens flares, there's a lot of almost glary lighting. It's not too perfect. I mean, they're beautiful, they're beautiful images, but they're intentionally imperfect so that they feel photographic. And it works seamlessly. Thank you. But the thing is that uh, on my set, I had like uh, an iPad at one point where I could yeah. actually see a building. I was in the yeah. desert and I, I could see the, but I was still in a real environment having, some, but you, you are in total uh, uh, virtual world. You have a level of precision and your mise-en-scene is so precise. And what is amazing for me is that it feels like when you look at Avatar, how immersive it was. It meant that you had to know this world with such an intimacy, like if you had been there for real. I should shadow you for a few days to understand no, how you do it. I don't it. think so. I, I don't think you need it. I think you're doing fine. Uh, but, you know, two things. One, you know, I assembled the best team of designers that I could. We basically stood up a, a virtual environment like a video game. And like your iPad, I was able to move around within that space and ask the actors, you know, what do you want to do? And if, and if as we put a scene together, if I wanted to move a waterfall over there or cliff over there, I could do it pretty quickly in that virtual world. And so then by the time we got to the, to the, the sequels, we spent a lot of money to formalize that process and create what we call simulcam. So I'm able to look through my live action camera and see those set extensions automatically, comping in real time. So however I turn the wheels, because I, like I like to operate, I can look around that world and compose within the world in, li in live action. Now, it took us six years of development to get it to that level, but I actually think that the performance capture stuff is very specific to Avatar, but the simulcam stuff, I think, could be applied to any imaginative film that requires something there beyond the, the, the live action. How do you, can you bring sensuality, something tactile, and, and how, uh, right. how do you achieve right. that? So the thing that I admire about Dune so much, and, and your, your science fiction work in general, is there's a real sense of the physical presence of the place and the people being really there. So knowing that that was going to be a challenge on Avatar because the nature of production, I took the actors on, on what I called a kind of a sense memory odyssey. So we went to Kauai and we went into the rainforest and we lived in the rainforest for a few days. I said, all right, we're going to walk up a trail and I want you to observe as much as you can about how you place your feet, how you place your hands when you go up a steep section, because you're going to have to remember it, what it felt like, what it smelled like, and you're going to have to bring it back into a relatively sterile environment. And we all just embarked on that journey. But it strikes me that in Dune, you went to location. People had sand. If they fell, they rolled down a sand dune. So that looked like a pretty hostile filming environment to me, hard on the equipment too. I can cope pretty easily with heat. And it's gonna be, sound strange for a Canadian, but uh, having shot in the cold, cold is something that is a killer. The will can get free, but heat, I'm, I'm okay with it. As a Canadian, I agree totally. I hate to admit how, how much I don't like shooting in the cold. The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. 
you approach it from the standpoint of I'm taking my cameras as far in the world as I have to to give my act what they need to create that sense of reality that you've been talking about. It has to have the human reality has to have the reality of the heart and, and human emotions, which a lot of filmmakers kind of lose it in the sprawl of, of big epic storytelling. So the, and the key to that is casting. So how did you get such amazing actors to participate in this made-up world? I think it's probably the most stressful part of the, of the process for me, the casting, because you cannot go wrong with casting. A movie like Arrival, even if you have the best VFX in the world, if you don't have Amy Adams, all the movie, relies on Amy's highs and the intelligence. And that's where the magic is for me. When I work with actors, I try to bring reality around them as much as possible in order to preserve that emotion, in order to preserve that creativity and to create an intimate bubble around the camera where everything seems as tangible as possible and real as possible for them so they can feel immersed in that world. That's why I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe and, and really impressed by how you do it. It's amazing that uh, you can reach performance uh, as you do and that level of emotion as you do in, in, a, in a world that uh, is uh, not existing. <laughs> it's amazed me. Uh, but actors, actors live in here and in here anyway. Yeah, it's true. Like in theater, in theater, yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so Chalamet is obviously such a, an obvious choice once you've seen him in the role. Was he always obvious to you or did you were you exploring and stumble over him? He was my only choice in my mind for several reasons. First of all, because of his acting chops. I mean, the, he's a really solid young actor. He has a whole soul. So he's really a, very mature. Yeah. And at the same time, he looks tremendously young on screen. Paul Atreides is like, supposed in the book to be 16 years old or something like that. So I needed someone that looks like an old teenager that is about to become a man. And he's a very masculine young man, but he has a, something feminine a little bit. In I was going to say that, that he has a, he has a female energy. Yeah, he, he, that is Paul Atreides for me. There's something about that, that Paul is a young man that will get all his power from his feminine side, from his mother's side. The man that gets his power from the female size of his genes, uh, I, I thought was a very powerful idea in the book. And his fighting style wasn't based on strength, it was based on speed and fluidity of movement. So even when he was doing the typical masculine thing, nothing more masculine than a knife fight, but he still mm. moved like water. It's based almost, as you rightly said, on, on speed and intelligence, a bit like chess game, you know? Because of the shields, the idea is that you have to bring a blade inside as slowly as possible in the opponent's shield. So in order to do that, you have to distract the opponent. You have to make a series of moves that will distract him. A bit like chess game, you know, when you, you make moves in order to bring your piece and strike the king. I mean, you obviously were able to inspire these actors to go in all the way. You know, and actors love that, as we as we both know. They love to be able to go in all the way, but it's up to the director to create that portal for them so that they know who the character is and, and all that. And it's, it's always especially hard when you're in a fantastic environment that they've never been in. I get a feeling that you surrounded them with sets and with costumes that gave them all that to, to work with. Are you a director that rehearses a lot with your actors? Do you prefer the spontaneity? I like preparation and spontaneity. I like to read through and then we'll just jump up out of the read through and we'll rehearse. I like to try to find like the key moment of a, of a scene with the actors way in advance so I can always protect it cinematically later so I know where we're going. But then on the day of, 
I really like to give them a lot of freedom to explore and try different things and go up, go down, turn their backs on each other, whatever it is. I, I don't like to usually come in with a strong blocking. Uh, I may have it in the back of my mind, and I may subtly push them toward a blocking that gets somebody standing near a window so I get that nice light, you know, or whatever it is. Because if there's no lightning striking on the day, what's the fun? From that process, do you change the screenplay sometimes? Oh, sure. Yeah, I always make the assumption that I, I, I wish I could afford a better writer. So <laughs> really, the final draft is, is the cut, but there's definitely a draft the day of. And, and Bill Paxton taught me this back in the day because he would come in with so many crazy kind of Midwest bits of slang and expressions I'd never heard before that I just realized, you know, if you want to show up with something a little extra, that works for me. When I look at Avatar, it's so exotic. It is so, it's fantastic and amazing. And me, I was, I was, I think I was going in a different uh, direction, which is like something more familiar. I wanted the audience to feel that they had a strange close relationship with that uh, with Arrakis. I was not aiming. To, I want. I wanted to bring Arrakis closer to us. It yes, felt right yes. to me because it meant that uh, people, the audience, will feel a sensation of realism that I think will be more touched by Paul's journey to believe to be closer. You, I think, totally succeed going in a different, totally different direction, which which is like to go in a... Not that different, not that different, because I tried for real touchstones of everyday reality in the human environment yeah. and the exoticism outside, the alienness. There's a very specific shot of three ornithopters. You see two initially, and they're stacked on a very long lens shot, and then a, a third one swoops in across the foreground. And we've all seen that shot done with helicopters. And you instantly made your aircraft, your exotic aircraft design, familiar. We've all seen that shot in Black Hawk Down or, exactly. or whatever. It's, it's, right? it's, you're the first one to mention it. It's an homage to Ridley. <laughs> I really, because I wanted to have that uh, exactly that uh, subconscious response in the audience mind, thinking that all oh, those machines might, could be real. But you did the same with Avatar, when you, you were designing your aerials using lens that felt like uh, grounded into reality. When you are working in full uh, uh, virtual environment, it means that you had to bring that discipline uh, uh, and, and that uh, structure uh, uh, in, uh, without any, any uh, reference. That's, uh, it's amazing for me. I was stunned by the design. I thought it was absolutely spectacular. I loved the the severity and the discipline in the lines in the, the Atreides house. Can you just, you know, tell tell us all, you know, how you choose your designers and what you ask them to do? I mean, obviously, step one, read the book, but then what? First of all, I, I, we, were, we went for a landscape. How to, what Arrakis would look like, what would be more specifically the color palette, what kind of light we were looking for. I was not looking for beauty, I was looking for the, the, the power of the landscape. I kept saying your drawing needs to be done like if it was a bad Tuesday morning and the light was bad and it was hazy and the, the, the sun was not proper and you're sad because you don't have to. <laughs> I wanted to have something very mundane, very close to grounded in the, it for me it was the, the, the let's say that the design at the beginning was less important than the atmospheric yeah. mood i'm gonna geek out and be a fan here talk to me about how you saw shai hulud because you presented it as this kind of vast almost godlike 
force. As I said, I read the book half a century ago, although it's still quite vivid for me. I had forgotten that the Fremen worshipped it as a deity. But it seemed to me that for you, it was almost more representative of nature as this kind of raw elemental force. What was your thought process? It's something that in the book uh, uh, really um, touched me. When I read the book, I was stu- I was studying biology. I could have become a biologist, by the way. I, I was. Yeah. There's a yeah. crossroad at one point where I, I had to a camera or a microscope. I insisted that it will be as much inspired by nature as possible and trying to go away from fantasy. It was like studying the behavior of the worm were inf- giving us information to design it. I think it took us almost a year to find the right shape. It's a beast that need to survive in the most toughest, roughest environment. Right. So the way we designed the skin, the way we designed his movements, the way it was all link with this idea of surviving in the deep desert. Here was to try to create an encounter between two species and for that for a moment, from an outsider point of view, it can look like a miracle. Paul's miracle could be scientifically explained. I mean, the worm stop because he hears a thumper and goes away, but it, it, there's a moment where they, both of them look at each other. Paul is out of the worm hunting zone, so the worm doesn't need to kill this intruder that could threat is, is spice fields. But people won't interpret it that way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You, you exactly. know what I mean? Or, or they, they have permission to interpret it spiritually or, or religiously or, have the, or accept the secular scientific explanation. This is what I asked my writers to do with me on the Avatar sequels. There's a whole messianic through line in these stories, uh, you know, on my side of it, again, probably inspired by Dune, and the idea that there's a scientific explanation for every single thing that happens, but you don't have to accept it. You can also accept it, you know, at a level that doesn't require explanation, like there's some sense of a higher order or a a higher meaning. I'm fascinated by the limit of knowledge and unknown, you know, the, the limits of science. And, and you yourself, you're a scientist. I mean, you, 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 you study oceans, you're like a, the limit of our knowledge. That, that limit where, when we don't know, it becomes spiritual. And that, that, uh, it's a, that, that frontier fascinates me. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I find myself drawn to spiritual themes at the same time grabbing myself by the neck and saying, but you're an empiricist. You're 100% an empiricist. You don't believe in, in the supernatural. But I do, I think, in the sense that, I, that there's so much we don't understand. Nature is so vast and such a... Nature is the miracle. Exactly. We are from the same religion. <laughs> yeah, well, we're both with our films paying homage to nature's complexity and, and how amazing it is. Thank you very much, James. It was an honor for me. And I hope I will add that. It was the, an honor the, for the, me as well. And, my, and, and congratulations. Thank you. As, as, and we say, as, as we say on Pandora, I see you. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. I, I, I will say this. Uh, I, I, I can't wait to sit in a theater watching Avatar. Definitely the next. Uh, I, I'll be the first one in the theater. I'll be the first one for the rest for the, for the second part of Dune. Trust me on that. <laughs> Take care. Okay, all right. Bonne chance. Merci. What a pleasure. 
it's nice to be the person asking the questions and not answering them. <laughs> um, it's also really nice to be asking them of a director whose work I admire so much and about a movie that I loved. Um, it is rare, I think, to see a movie on this kind of scale that has such a personal meaning to the filmmaker, personal touch in the style, obviously, but also which conforms so little to what we now feel is the conventions of big action movies or big blockbusters, and yet has still had a great commercial life, despite all the things that have happened in the world to do with streaming and COVID and what have you. So for that alone, I say congratulations. And um, <coughs> when I was watching it, I was trying to kind of think of the things I wanted to ask you. I mean, the obvious thing to start with is where did your relationship with the material begin? Because it, it I believe, goes back right to your childhood. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, first of all, thank you so much for being in a, well, for watching the movie in a theater tonight. It means <laughs> the world to me. It, uh, yeah, it's uh, in, in those times, <laughs> it means a lot. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, it's a book I discovered when I was 13 years old, um, and uh, the book stayed with me through the years. It's really a book I was. Uh, I read the first. For the one who knows, it's a series of books, and and. Uh, I read them all, read all Frank Herbert's uh, novels. I, I was like, uh, and I became like a, a Dune fanatic. I, w I, 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 I had converted my friends around me. I, I, I was really like a um, maniac. And, and I was really excited uh, when I learned that David Lynch was uh, doing the adaptation. I had love Elephant Man at the time, I knew it. Uh, and, uh, uh, but I, I went out of the theater. Um, I, I, it's important to say that uh, I'm a massive fan of David Lynch. I mean, he's a master. We all, uh, all revere the master. But uh, um, when I went out of the theater, I was half satisfied. I was like feeling that there, there was um, elements, the things that were absolutely fantastic in this film, but he had deviated from the novel, from the spirit of it. There's something in the tone that when I went out uh, as a teenager, I said, that's not that, it's not. Uh, and and I, um, I kept saying to myself, somebody else will do it one day. <laughs> and I kept waiting, waiting, and I waited. And uh, at one point I got tired. And it's I kind of like, it's, you see, it's kind of like the plot of the movie. Eventually time will come around and eventually it will be you. You imagine someone doing it, but the person you imagine doing it was you. And it, those first images, of the book entered your, there's a great Sartre phrase, which is, I paraphrase, but you know, you, a man's work is nothing more or less than the slow trek to rediscover through the detours of art, those few, those two or three great and powerful images in the presence of which his heart first opened. Right? Okay, that's a quote. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I won't do that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, that's what it, it feels like sometimes when someone has a personal connection to the material when they're young. What were the first images that lodged themselves in your mind when your 13-year-old mind when you read the book that you've managed to get up on? Well, on that's a beautiful question because the, the, when I did this movie, um, um, I really tried to uh, reconnect with the images. The, the, uh, when I read the, the book, it was a very, at 13 years old, it was a v very visceral mm. reading. And uh, um, I uh, I tried to reconnect 
with those origin the, those uh, original images i really try to get back in contact with the teenager inside me with hmm. uh, the um, um like Anzimer did said we we did this movies this movie as teenagers really really we really uh, 13 years old <laughs> uh, uh spirit and uh, which was not i never done done that before and um I think that everything involving the desert, like the the, the first moment that Paul in co uh, is in, in contact with the desert, when Paul meets the Fremen at the end of the movie, that's really close to the early dreams. Uh, I remember finding that uh, finding sorry this uh, location um, in Jordan that horseshoe shaped rock rock formation that is so close to the description of Frank Herbert. I mean, it's like. Um, and the gum jabbar scene at the beginning with the reverend mother the there's the color palette the atmosphere charlotte rampling that's pretty close i mean <laughs> charlotte rampling reminds me uh, uh, if i may she's one of my favorite actors but she i'm very afraid of her and and <laughs> she so has something so in her presence that reminds me of my grandmother at one point uh, uh, yeah it's a movie about my grandmothers <laughs> <laughs> it's her first one <laughs> And with a movie like this, I mean, I even I, as a filmmaker, did think, where do you start? Because you're creating a universe, and you know, uh, some of which is visual effects, some of which is real, and that that intersection is something that moves constantly, scene to scene. So, where were your starting points? What were the, you know, what were the first scenes you put together? How did you describe what you wanted? Was it the desert? Was it interiors? Was I it I, I uh, started to draw with them. Uh, I have a old friend of mine, Sam Udeki, was my storyboard artist, and I wanted to start alone with him, and uh, we drew tons of sketches, and the first ones were just like little tiny silhouettes. I was asking Sam to draw a line, <laughs> and to draw a silhouette, and a more another line, so just to try to uh, feel the um, relationship of the humans with the landscape, and to try to start to draw the... the isolation and the melancholic isolation of the characters uh, and the first thing i think that i tried to uh, to uh, nail if i can say uh, mm. is the light how what will be the the quality of the light on this planet it's a uh, when the people were doing the artwork at, at the beginning i was really trying to uh, find um, the emotion that i wanted to feel the the everyday life feeling that I was I wanted to feel in in the the light out outside mm. in the desert I wanted something that was not pretty I wanted something that I wanted to feel the power of the and power and the the pressure of the planet but not not its beauty I wanted to be feel close to nature and I worked hard on the on the artwork because I remember um that uh, uh, I did not do my homeworks correctly on the previous movie Meaning that uh, I, I, um, my artwork on Blade Runner 2049 were not um, precise enough, and and uh, Roger Deakins, who I work with on, on, the, on the movie, kept saying to me that uh, it was not precise enough, and I said, nah, "I'll do it later." And and uh, and uh, Roger is here tonight, <laughs> and I, I, I <laughs> but it's true, and I remember that. Uh, so I, I on this one I took more time and try to make sure that uh, things will be so precise that uh, we will not, uh, if I can say, fucked it up when we are, like, go in the VFX world. Yeah. That's, a, that's a brilliant answer. Um, th this is a not just a giant epic, a visual um, 
panorama, an incredible act of imagination, but it's also a philosophical book. I mean, it's a book about time in some ways. And, and you know, Herbert talks about time being cyclical. You know, this whole thing of, you know, I think he says, what is it? 100,000 years, every time that time repeats itself. Is that something, and you know, I, I, the way that you play with time in the movie, the way that you play with flash forward and flash back and you know, the, the, the way that we eventually catch up with ourselves narratively, is that something that fascinates you? Do you believe that that, that is the case? Do you think that time does operate in that way? Um, uh, I think that uh, what I was trying to capture is anxiety and the relationship with anxiety with time. I mean, to, uh, to someone that can uh, foresee, not foresee, sometimes that can feel the future, meaning that he, he can, he has specific emotions to the events that will come in front, of, uh, uh, that will come soon, but it's like awakened dreams that are very imprecise that you need to decipher. And I think it's ki quite kind of interesting and nightmarish that you can predict a bit like you dream, meaning that uh, it's uh, so um, premonition. yeah, premonitions that, but that, that, that are like puzzles and that the thing that you see are not necessarily accurate, but no. what you feel is accurate. And that is like uh, things that you will have to uh, learn as uh, the, the in the second movie, you know. Yeah, I was telling you beforehand that he very cleverly snuck in the fact that it was part one. <laughs> on none of the materials does it say it's part one, mm. on the poster or anything like that. And eventually you go, say, hang on a second, it's part one? You mean there's another? <laughs> <I'm> another? <laughs> I thought that was very clever, that. <laughs> <I was> like <laughs> Let's say that uh, from it, it, it was for everybody working on the movie, it was clear that it was part one. I think that maybe marketing felt it was like... <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, <laughs> luckily, we're going to get to see part two, thanks to the, how good the movie is and how successful it's been. Is there an element of warning about the movie now that feels, you know, kind of in the last two or three years, our clarity about climate change, about the way the world's going? It seems more appropriate, more prescient now than it was perhaps even when you imagined Definitely. Doing it. I mean, when uh, Frank Herbert, I mean, he was starting to, to, to talk about climate change uh, in the 60s. Yeah, that you can see, you can find interviews of, of uh, Herbert uh, saying, uh, warning people that we have to change our ways of life. And at the beginning of the 70s, I mean, he was like really f uh, uh, foreseeing um, those changes. Mm. And uh, is, um, let's see, it, it, because in the movie right now, it's just the birth, it's the beginning. It's, it's just, we, with this movie, the truth is we put the table. I mean, it's like a, for, for the story, I mean, it's like, but the, the idea that um, the danger of the blending of religion and politics, that is something that is, uh, uh, became, I think, what was present, in the, of course, in the, in the 20th century, but it bec it's it's because it's, uh, the world is getting more radical right mm -hmm. now in that regard. Um, politics using, weaponizing religion, religion infiltrating politics, it's mm -hmm. like more and more, and. Uh, um, and the impact of colonialism that uh, are more, uh, um, I mean, we are more aware of them today. Maybe they were, uh, we, we mm. took them for, I mean, yeah, we feel, so we have more uh, conscience, conscience of them. You've also got, in with the movie here, you got caught up with, you know, the, um, the biggest event, of the world of global events since, since the, the Second World War and it gave you an extra year to sit on this movie, worry about it, obsess about it. What did you do with the extra time? Did it, did it help or did it hinder you? 
The truth is, is uh, when it, it happened and we decided, decided to, we were, the movie was uh, very advanced when the, very, very advanced. And uh, I love how legendary Mary Parron just said, listen, we were supposed to rush and run toward the finishing line. Now you're going to walk. So, and, and, and it gave Hans Zimmer more time. I mean, uh, to 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 work, uh, and uh, it allowed us also. There was a process that uh, Greg Fraser and I were we were dreaming to do. We shot the, the movie in digital, but uh, we wanted to try something um, that was uh, it was like to finish entirely the movie, and then uh, scan the movie in 35 millimeter so to 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 make a 35 millimeter millimeter print, and then re rescan that in digital. Mm -hmm. So to give uh, a patina of 35 mm -hmm. uh, over the whole movie, but one shot. And there <laughs> but it, it, uh, it, it allowed me to play with uh, the grain. It's, it's, um, I don't like uh, digital grain when it's added, but this way, with this process, it was interesting for what it brought in the, hu <coughs> in the human face, in the faces of the character. I thought it was, uh, uh, it brought some, some kind of uh, organic feeling that I really love. And it was good to blend the VFX a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I will say the VFX were uh, 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 great without it, but it, it's just it, even that it helped a little mm -hmm. bit. It brought, uh, we did uh, um, a, a lot of test, uh, camera tests at the beginning, because uh, and those camera tests were very nice. I mean, and, uh, and the idea was to make them so beautiful that we would be able to convince the studio to shoot in 35 millimeter. <laughs> and we wanted to shoot in 35, but when I look at the test, to my great surprise, I realized that I preferred the LF, the, the camera you use yourself. Yeah. The, in fact, you guys, uh, uh, you were our uh, test. Uh, we, we tested well for the you. camera. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm proud <laughs> to be considered the, the testing no, crew for for Dune. Yes, yes, yeah. you did. Thank yeah, you, Roger. No, Roger will be the same. <laughs> exactly. No, but it's it's because just to see that there's a camera that there's the LF large format Alexa, but there's also the mini uh, LF that is a smaller format. And it's true, the camera was coming out of the oven. You, you were yeah. the first one to, to use yeah. it and then... Uh, yeah. It is a remarkable... Yeah. I mean, it, well, thanks. I, I agree with that. No, <laughs> pleasure, please, believe me. Um, you, you went from one big movie, Blade Runner, to another one, right? I mean, you, that's quite a big choice, isn't it? And I mean, I think of Blade Runner as a big movie, isn't it? You know, for me, it was huge. I mean, yeah. Uh, and um, do you hanker for the days where you can make a smaller film and you don't have the vast pressure of it, or does it make you want to do more? You no, know, but you don't choose those things. I mean, it's like uh, uh, the movie comes to you. It's like uh, um, Dune. I was dreaming to do that since forty years, and it, it happened that the right got available, and I, I was feeling that I had the energy to do it. Mm -hmm. And finally, also the knowledge to bring the movie to, to, to life. I would have never dared to try that uh, 10 years ago. I mean, but I, I, I was feeling that I was ready. And you know, you made uh, movies like that. Mm. It, it requires a lot of stamina. <laughs> yeah. And I have it right now. Yeah. And maybe in uh, 15 years, I don't know. It's like, it's <laughs> like. Uh, yeah, you don't want to wait. No, no. It's like, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, um, I think, of course, one day I will, I will go to a smaller. Uh, project, but for now I feel I have the energy to do it, yeah. And I'm going to ask a few nerdy director questions, <coughs> and then I'm going to throw it open to, to questions from you guys, but I, I, this is 
this is why I do these things, so I can ask uh, uh, <laughs> things like, for example, are you the first person on set, the last person on set in the morning? Do you get there before everyone else? Or do you kind of like, does it vary day to day? Well, I cannot lie because uh, James and Roger <laughs> are in the room. You can't lie about any of these things, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, but uh, um, uh, I love to arrive as early as possible. That's the truth. Um, I love to, uh, to be, uh, I'm never the first one, but I love to, to happen uh, uh, so I can walk the set, meditate, looking at the space, and I love uh, to be alone when the cinematographer is working. There's something that I love to arrive uh, as early as possible. Yeah. And do you ever play music on set? What's the set no, feel no, no. like? No, I deeply hate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love silence. I, uh, I, I really love silence. It's like uh, my kids. And my wife think I'm very boring. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I like, like it's uh, something that is absolutely forbidden in the car in the morning. It has to be total silence. You cannot wow. listen to radio. You cannot listen to music. And on set too, I need total silence. I mean, it's like, uh, and, and um, it's a thing that, uh, again, if I may, I, I, I love uh, working with Roger, who loves, who do the, I think, the same. Uh, yes. I know he doesn't he play jazz music. Silence, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I, I, I'm something that uh, music is too uh, powerful. It, it drives me in directions I don't like. It's like I need to focus. I need to, I need, uh, and I try as much as I can to keep the set as quiet as possible. Uh -huh. as, uh, yeah, very quiet. For cell, cell phones are forbidden. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah. And do you like to keep only the bare, the bare minimum of people on, on set? Um, I once visited a Spielberg set, and it was like, it was like a block party. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was insane. Just like, how can you work like this? And he loved it. He was just, it was like riding a wave for him. And he looked at me and he said, Ambrosia. He said like this, like, you know, and it, it, I just thought I couldn't like direct my way out of a paper bag in this atmosphere. It was, it was insane. But some people love that but kind you, of you, 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 So you're the same. I, I'm very similar, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, occasionally I'll play music because I'm just getting bored of <laughs> waiting for something to, but you know, I, on the whole, it, it's the same. And uh, although I don't ban it in the car, I mean that is quite impressive that you ban no, no, it. Uh, your children, you're I not swear, allowed to listen to music. No, no, but uh, <laughs> I'm alone in the car. I mean, so it's, it's not <laughs> no, no, but with the driver, I, I, no, it's important. When you get, when you hit the but wall, the, the, the actors love that too. I mean, it makes a huge difference for well, the actors. Yeah, but there are some directors who play music all the time. I know. I, I know. mean, I have friends like that. that yeah, does that and all I, the time. I, it's, I, a, it's a thing. It's a, it's a, you know, it, it's the way the brain works and what helps you concentrate or inspires you in some way. And you know, music must inspire you. Yeah, a friend you, of mine. Ready do, a friend of mine does every time he plays. He does a shot. He starts with his iPhone of the music on the bottle. Burr, burr, burr. He does yeah. a crane on the bottle and a dolly on the bottle, and we play music. And I'm like, I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, that's like you're supposed. You don't feel the shot. You don't. I don't. You know, I don't understand. Uh, when I, uh, I I I used to ask director friends. You know, have you ever asked yourself how did how would Kubrick do it? And what I mean by that is when you hit the wall. And you think, what, you know, and you, you get lost in the woods. And sometimes it does happen, however much you prep or whatever, you, you're in a scene, you think, I, what was my original? Are there, is there a touchstone? Is there an artistic touchstone? Is there someone you think, you know, you take a step back and how would Bresson do it? Or how would Melville do it? Or do you never think in terms of other filmmakers, you always, in your own 
space? Uh, honestly, I cannot work thinking about. <coughs> uh, it's very. Uh, uh, it's not arrogance. It's just a, a way to survive. Mm -hmm. When I work, I, I uh, if I do a shot, I do the shot like if I was the first one doing it. I know that there's history of cinema that everything has been done. <laughs> blah blah blah. I know it's true, but when I shoot, if I make a shot of the bottle, it needs. I, I need to think that I'm the first human being. <laughs> shooting a bottle, <laughs> so I can find my way into it. I can. Uh, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I never exactly. work. I, I I never think about how oh, the other people will do it. Never. How many cups of coffee in the morning? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, it's I'm I'm not a human being before the first espresso, so it's <laughs> like uh, uh, I say two two yeah, espressos. That's, that's yeah. pretty good. That's pretty. I mean, yeah, I never answered. Good, you guys are. I don't know if it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> Listen, I'm fascinated. I don't know about you. I'm really enjoying this. But Al Pacino, I mean, I mean, Al Pacino cannot function before he's drunk thirty espressos, three zero espressos. So you know, two is that's pretty, uh, that's pretty reasonable. But I, I think it's just about energy and about the way that I'm fascinated. But the strong espresso. I mean. uh, yeah, you're now you're feeling you're, no, no, you're no, jealous no. of her. But <laughs> what's interesting is that directors, you, you know. Roger, who's here tonight, will have seen the work of many different directors. He's worked with many different directors. We have never seen other directors' work. We, we, we only yes, know yes. our own methods. And so the, the, kind, of, the kind of really, the nitty-gritty of how you approach a day, how you envisage something, how you imagine something in the first place, you know, uh, the journey between your imagination and what goes on screen and how to shorten that journey, which seems to me the big goal, how to simplify that, simplify the process, between you, the cinematographer, the actor, the, the, the story, that seems to be everything. And, and th what's remarkable about this movie is that on the whole with big movies, and I know this from my own experience, the distance between the imagined and the real is longer and feels further away from what you originally conceived. But this is a very, very personal film on a huge scale. It's, it's very, very unusual, and for that you need a team of extremely trusting and close collaborators, which you've clearly got, um, working on every level brilliantly. You know, the, the control of palette, the control of light, as you talked about. You know, every shot, you could take a freeze frame, I don't know what you think about every shot in this movie, and be like, I'll put that on my wall, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a surfeit of beauty in a way. It's just like, you know, it's staggering. Uh, there are so few functional shots. You know, you, you also do this when you're dealing with moving on a big scale. You, you, you end up having to do, well, I've got to do this to get from A to B. You know, <laughs> just have to put these three shots in just to make sense of it. And, you know, it, it operates on a, on a level of dream and imagery, which is, which is very unusual for a film of this scale, which is one of the reasons I think it's so impressive. Anyway, that's just my uh, peon to, to the movie. Thank you, Sam. Uh, <laughs> but anyway... Um, so p please, let's, let's open up to some questions from the floor. There must be a few, although it always gets slow to get going. That gentleman in the middle there in the cap. I was going to ask you about music. Um, <coughs> do you use guide tracks when you're cutting? Do you, are you scoring as you go? How does it work? Okay, uh, uh, if I use guide tracks, um, the, um, the first cut that I do has never no music at all. I mean, I always cut uh, uh, without music at first. It's super important because that's the for me the only way you can really feel the weaknesses, the the where you need to put more love in a scene or what it's, it's like a, or whether you have like momentum problems or it's it's a music is very powerful again it's like I love music by the way it's just that uh, yeah I'm sensitive <laughs> okay so and and then 
the dream is to start to work with the, uh, as soon as possible with the composer and the composer start to lay tracks. Uh, I did that uh, uh, with uh, Johan Johansson at the time. Here, uh, because of different, uh, several reasons, Hans uh, Zimmer, the composer, was um, really um, obsessed with the idea of uh, trying to put himself out of his comfort zone and to reinvent himself and he explored and explored, he became mad. <coughs> and he really created, the uh, invented new instruments. That he w and I was feeling he was putting so much pressure on himself and I had one at, at, at one point I had to show the movie to just do so. We, we, tempted, we did a, a temp track, which I, I hate to do that, but I didn't have the choice and, and uh, Hans came after and put his, his but um, there's the temp track are on me for uh, when I need to show my director's cut uh, and uh, when the, the there's m missing music. But uh, in a perfect world, I would prefer not to do that. Uh. Did you ever say anything when you said, I don't like it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going uh, to try to be honest here. No? Um, he did a lot of experiment, but um, no, frankly, um, at the time when he came with the music, it was quite the opposite. I was uh, deeply moved. Um, he, he played a suite for a, what I call a Paul Atreides suite, Paul's Dream. And I remember uh, listening to this and, and that and uh, being, frankly, uh, really moved by... Uh, I, was, uh, I had said to Hans that I wanted the, the music to be that have a sacred quality to it, spiritual quality to... Uh, Increase the the notion of uh, of uh, the relation the relation the sacred relationship between humans and nature, and to uh, increase the that that feeling of spirituality toward nature, and uh, we uh, both agreed that the agreed that the score should be feminine to have that kind of feeling that thread of the Bene Gesserit influence over the old score, and uh, Hans again wanted to uh, create new sound so it, uh, it it's it's yeah i was deeply moved no so to uh, frankly no they didn't brought something that i said uh, go back to no it <laughs> no it was uh, really it was honestly maybe i apologize maybe i said that before it was the first one i approached to make the movie because at the time i was finishing blade runner and and uh, he uh, we had a conversation uh, as a, and uh, he told me it was uh, probably one of his favorite books of all time he had never seen any other incarnation uh, uh, adaptation yeah he wanted to stay a virgin for to say one day maybe someone would approach me to for for <laughs> for and 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 uh, so it was like a very very uh, i would say a very special project for him yeah and he put a lot of efforts mm -hmm. yeah. you can tell i think over there stunningly visual it's also brilliantly put together. I think the editing is, is amazing. I just wonder what your process with Joe Walker was and whether it's any different for this movie than any of your previous movies? Um, no, I think that uh, the, the big difference is, uh, of course, uh, we have much more time because the accumulation of, uh, of uh, visual effects and, uh, and um, um, it was uh, not, a, it, I mean, the 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 storytelling the story is quite sim uh, straightforward, but but uh, to find the right momentum, 
the, the to, to find the, the, the right equilibrium between the meditative feeling I wanted in the movie and still having that uh, pacing uh, that uh, I was looking forward to that is a bit different of what we've done before, uh, Joe and I. That was a long process. It, it took us uh, and to also find uh, the equilibrium in the dream sequence that they will reveal enough, but not too much. And uh, to that, uh, it was uh, yeah, it was not a, it was a long edit, but uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, I will say. Thank you. I'm happy you're saying so. Mm -hmm. Who else? Gentleman over there. Uh, congratulations, first of all. Um, I'm wondering, you mentioned storyboards. I'm wondering how closely you, did you storyboard the whole thing and did you, how closely did you stick to that during the shoot? Uh, yes, I storyboard the whole thing. Um, I mean, uh, um, it's a good question. The storyboards, uh, the, when I, the, the storyboards for me are really there to uh, define what will be the visual language. Each I'm trying to each movie you try to do something uh, different, and uh, trying to define the specific rhythm, the language of the movie. Um, then, the rules. On that movie, I said to the crew, is uh, uh, the the storyboard uh, uh, over? How can I say that in English? Uh, um, uh, precede the, the 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 screenplay, but nature precede the the, the storyboard. Meaning that if uh, what 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 happened in the desert, it was it was getting much more uh, spontaneous. It was all storyboarded, but uh, we were uh, and held uh, uh, and trying to be aware, to be listened to what was around us a lot, so we improvised shots, but uh, uh, the whole movie was storyboarded, yeah. It really helped me specifically with a movie like that, with the amount of visual effects to communicate, to, to it's a, I mean, you, you, do you storyboard a lot? Yes, no? It depends. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes it's incredibly useful, and sometimes I, I find it, um, I mean, we didn't, Roger and I didn't storyboard a frame of, Actually, we did a bit of 1917, but it felt pointless rendering a movie that was all fluid. Yeah, it was difficult images. to storyboard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like didn't make any. But it helped us. You know, it just it just it forces you to, to focus on what is in the frame in a movie like that. Some movies not not at all. Um, but you know, I, I I love it when it. But you know, I find that the storyboards are useful after four months when you're exhausted and you you turn up to do a scene and you've literally forgotten your first. Forgot your name. Yeah, you forget. Yeah, <laughs> you know, as as Kubrick said, you know, they said, "What's the most difficult thing about being a film director?" He said, "Getting out of the car in the morning." <laughs> that and it's I, like I rely to this so much. No? Exactly. Because for me, that's the toughest decision in the morning is to get out of the car. <laughs> yeah. And and because you uh, know what's going to happen when you get out, yeah, you yeah, have yeah, to yeah, make yeah. decisions. And that's where you're happy to have storyboards. <laughs> exactly, and that's when you need them. It's like, what yeah. what did I think about this scene again? You know, or what did me and Roger discuss about this scene? You know, that sort of. Um, one last question, and then we have to call it a day. Gentleman down here. I just want to ask you uh, about the cast, because it's such an incredible cast. So I just wonder, um, who did you have in mind beforehand, and then who kind of came after that? You know, like, did you have people, as soon as you kind of decided to do the project, that were like, this would be Paul, this would be, or did it kind of come <coughs> Let's say that uh, uh, about casting, um, 
it's always a delicate, uh, delicate question. Um, the, the, what you see on screen is pretty close to my dream list. I mean, there was like a, um, uh, there's a, uh, an actress that. Uh, so the people that are there are the people I was really. Uh, but Sharon Duncan, Duncan Brewster, I I, uh, I met through a, a casting process. So it was a really like a beautiful. Uh, I really I was really impressed by this actress, and uh, so she came on board. Uh, toward the end of the casting process, but uh, most of them are people that uh, I was uh, having had in mind uh, after when I, the screenplay was finished. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought particularly Rebecca Ferguson that was the best. I thought she was astonishing in it, but she seemed to go to a whole other level. Was that? Were you aware of that? What do you mean? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I felt that she was channeling something in, in the movie in a way that was very personal? But, um, she is truly one of a kind. I mean, she's a really one of the best uh, uh, artists I ever worked with. <coughs> Super flexible and precise. And said that was the, her part. I mean, she had to uh, add that uh, dimension that she's playing a mother, but she's also playing a, uh, someone that belongs to a, a, a religious congregation that has some beliefs that are uh, in part in conflict with her own uh, motherhood. I mean, the, the, the all that and, and uh, what you're talking about, that spirituality, yeah, it was part of the, mm. it's something that uh, had a lot of fun working with her. Yeah. yeah, well, it shows, it's fantastic. And, you know, my only last question is, can I be on your crew next time you make a movie? <laughs> Because it so feels sweet. like fun, doesn't I mean, it? That, that like should you feel be so relaxed and everything. It's so, you know, my world is so tense compared to yours, Denis. It's just like you have no idea to channel what you're talking some about. Gallic <laughs> shit. My 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 wife Tanya is in the room. She will. Yeah, <laughs> tell she can come truth. on stage and see the truth. <laughs> but uh, no, no, I think that. Yeah, I would love to to bring you coffee in the morning. Uh, great. <laughs> Second unit, I think it's <laughs> that's that's on the cards. Listen, Denis, thank you so much. Fantastic. Yeah. Really thank you. Thank you. Thank you.